1: Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Uh, I'm Kristen Beard-Adams, Chief Operating Officer of the Office of of the Regional Presidents at PNC and proud member of the City Club Board of Directors. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation with influential women in the music industry about their work, the history of rock and roll, and the power of the female voice in effecting lasting change, with a particular emphasis on the impact of the Me Too movement. In recent months, Me Too and movements like Time's Up and Voices in Entertainment have brought unprecedented and much needed attention to survivors of rape, sexual assault and harassment, and to gender inequality in the workplace. We feel the impact of that firsthand here in Cleveland, where the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, the largest of its kind in the country, continues to experience record numbers of calls from survivors, many of whom were reluctant to earlier seek the services that they need. This trend, along with the more robust dialogue like that we'll have here today, comes in the wake of resignations and dismissals of high-profile actors and film executives amidst allegations of sexual assault and harassment. At the same time, the gender wage gap has taken center stage as a growing number of high-profile women talk far more publicly than ever before about the experiences that they have had of consistently being paid less than their male counterparts. While Hollywood and the entertainment industry have often been the focus of these discussions, the music industry has as well. That is part of our context today, and it could not be more timely as we prepare to, this Saturday, celebrate here in Cleveland the 2018 class of inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, including Sister Rosetta Tharp and Nina Simone, two extraordinary, powerful, pioneering musicians whose influences continue to be felt today. We have quite a lineup of experts with us today, and here to steward the conversation is our good friend, NPR's Senior Director of Music, Dr. Lauren Onke. In, in her new role, uh, for which she was tapped last fall, Lauren uh, leads NPR's music team of journalists, critics, video and podcast makers and works with NPR's newsroom and the robust member station network, uh, network of stations across the country to expand the impact of NPR music and continue positioning public radio as an essential force in music. Um, prior to joining NPR, um, Lauren was the inaugural Dean and Chair of the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Humanities Center at Cuyahoga County Community College, but I think most notably for many of us here today, Lauren also served as the Vice President of Education and Public Programming at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. So Dr. Anki, I'm going to turn the program over to you um, to introduce our panel. Thanks. Um, it's great to see so many friends in the house.
2: Um, and really great to be in Cleveland in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction week. Um, I'll start at the end. Uh, Gail Wald is professor of English at George Washington University and my neighbor, Uh, and she is the author of Shout, Sister, Shout, and also a fantastic book called it's Been Beautiful, Soul, and Black Power Television, a really fantastic book uh, exploring a television show that was on public TV uh, in the DC area that that featured so many important African-American musicians and uh, cultural work of the Black Power movement. Pick it up. Um, Noel Skaggs from Fits in the Tantrums, a fantastic singer and songwriter. <laughs> We were reminiscing who blew up the stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a number of years back um, and has done great work on her own and with a band called The Rebirth. And Meredith Rutledge Borger, curator at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the lead curator for Women Who Rock, the remarkable exhibit that the museum did on the history of women, early influences, all the way up to contemporary music in 2011. Um, So, remarkable, remarkable panel. Thank you all for being here. Um, I thought we would just start off by recognizing uh, Nina Simone and Sister Rosetta Tharp. Um, You know, it's always great to celebrate the Rock Hall Inductions, but for those of us who really uh, have cared for years and years about the role of women in music history, because that's part of the Me Too movement too, uh, having these women get into the Rock Hall—women who've been eligible for a long time—is really a great moment to to celebrate. Um, so let's see if we can quickly kind of get at their importance. Gail, can you can you give us your elevator speech on yes, why Sister Rosetta <laughs> Tharp matters?
3: Yeah, I would just say that it is—it's um, it, been really uh, remarkable to just see pictures of Nina Simone and Rosetta Tharp like, in the airport when you come in. It, it, I didn't think it was gonna mean as much to me and it's been really amazing. So it's been quite an experience. So Rosetta Tharp in two minutes. Rosetta Tharp, if you don't know about Rosetta Tharp, you need to, not, not right now, but when this lunch <laughs> is finished, um, you need to go to YouTube and that will tell you everything you need to know about Rosetta Tharp. Um, Born in 1915, died in 1973, she was a southerner from Arkansas who was gospel music's first crossover star. Um, She was a pioneering uh, female guitarist in rock and roll. She was arguably rock and rolls or gospel's first arena. Um, artist. She played at a baseball arena to celebrate her third wedding. She played um, electric guitar from Center Field at a baseball stadium in Washington D.C. with 20,000 people in 1951. Um, and it was recorded for Decca Records. So she's kind of the I, she's she's a she has been called by, by some people a godmother of rock. Um, I don't care what you call her, but she's clearly an important influence on generations of musicians even when she kind of was forgotten in the history books. I think musicians, she's always been remembered by musicians, including um, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and then on to, in fact, the Moody Blues are going to be inducted, and Graham Edge from the Moody Blues cited her as one of his influences. So that many generations of musicians. So there. Have I have I done that? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Meredith, you
3: want to give a crack on
4: Nina Simone? Oh yeah. God. I'm going to have to read because there's so much about Nina, and I, I don't want to forget anything. Um, She defied labels. She was a classically trained pianist. She was often considered a jazz singer, but she self-identified as a folk singer when she was pressed to be self-identified. She was also called the high priestess of soul. Um, Her dazzling presentation and virtuosity, range, and repertoire, which included everything from Israeli folk songs to works by the Bee Gees, Uh, spirituals, show tunes, her own incredible compositions, and powerful, um, this this repertoire remains unparalleled. She was born on the South Carolina border in North Carolina uh, in 1933. Her name was Eunice Wayman. Um, She was the sixth child of eight. Um, Her father had been uh, uh, an entertainer. Her mother became a minister and traveled around to different churches. And Eunice was a child prodigy on the keyboard and often accompanied her her mother uh, in her her ministry. Um, She started classical lessons at seven and set her sights on a career as a concert pianist. She was denied admission to study classical piano at a prestigious academy in Philadelphia in 1950. And she was always convinced that it was based on her race that she did not get into this academy. Um, she played piano in clubs to support herself and was also expected to sing. And in 1958, she released her debut album, Little Girl Blue. Um, her compositions including Mississippi God Damn, which came out in 1965, Four Women, which was released in 1966. They they defined a songwriting voice that was proudly, defiantly black and female. Um, Her 1969 civil rights anthem, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, exemplified her commitment to the civil rights movement. Um, As the civil rights movement splintered after the losses of Malcolm X and Dr. King, uh, Nina became sort of disillusioned uh, with the movement, with the civil rights movement, and with America and she became an expatriate. She moved first to Africa and then she lived in France um, and she passed away in 2003. And there's a lot more. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're That's all, the nutshell. We wanted a two-hour session, right? Um, Noelle, were, were Nina Simone or, or Sister Rosetta artists that you knew about as you were getting into music?
5: Um, it's it's interesting. I was just talking to Gail about uh, Rosanna in I discovered her in my like early 20s, I mm. believe, um, looking for women soul music artists for an event that I was hired for, mm. and I was basically doing kind of James Bond was the theme, so my whole <laughs> thing was finding divas in music mm. that I could actually you know sing and sing with all my heart, and Nina Simone was on the playlist. Um, It was the opening song, Do I Move You, um, which is an incredible song. If you've never heard it, definitely find that on Spotify or wherever you can. Um, But in my research, Sister Rosanna Thorpe came up in a a video and I see this woman singing (laughs) gospel, or at least what I thought was gospel because of her voice. (laughs) And playing this guitar and ripping it. And I had never heard (laughs) of her before. Like, never even, you know, no one in my music community knew who she was. And I was obsessed Mm. with that video. I played it multiple times and it just introduced me to all of these other women as well. So that one moment kind of actually defined that show for me because not only discovering, you know, this Nina Simone song that I had never heard before, it gave me an authority on stage that mm-hmm. I'd never had mm-hmm. before by my, you know, more in a solo aspect versus it being like, you know, a band that was known and, you know, had become known, all of these things. It gave me a voice that I'd never had before and that was the inspiration. Um, And Nina Simone has been that inspiration for me outside of, you know, music. It was in the way that she talked about the political structure and African American rights here in America and not being afraid to speak your truth And being who you are, regardless of what people thought about you and what you could lose, you Mm -hmm. know, it was this uh, this abandonment of fear, even though she may have had her own fears of, you know, uh, being able to appeal to the masses for a long time, making money, all of these things. She was really strong and direct about her statements. And whether you liked it or not, you had to hear the truth you know, and it's how you absorbed it. And that is, something, that is something that I've always tried to do with my platform. If I see something and I have an opinion on it and I know it's wrong, I'm going to say something, even knowing that there's going to be people out there that don't necessarily agree with me and probably going to be really angry mm-hmm. with hearing what I feel is the truth and, and stating it in a public form. I've had people send me all kinds of comments for things that I've I've said and, and, and that just stick to singing. That is the biggest oh. diss that first of all that and they know it. That's the biggest yeah. punch that you can say to anybody that's an actual artist that is educated. I'm not, you know, throwing out non-facts. I'm actually educating myself and I'm making educated statements. Mm-hmm so to attack me in that way and to belittle one me as an artist yeah. that I can only sing mm-hmm. and this is all I'm here to do is entertain you mm-hmm. is 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 something that I deal with but I have to get beyond my ego and just say you know what we can have a separate opinion and you can hear me or not but I hope that you do because that's the only way things are going to change you know so that was and that's Nita, who they are for me. Yeah, and Nina yeah. Simone
2: was sort of famously um, combative with audiences in that way. Yeah. Now Sister Rosetta, n- not so much with audiences, Gail, but but a challenge to the gospel yeah. sort of hierarchies. Yeah. Hierarchy, yeah. yeah.
3: When she was uh, uh, in her early 20s, she um, moved from a Miami tabernacle. She was a young married woman who was um, singing and playing to support her husband's ministry. She had an unhappy marriage, and. In a few months, she reinvented herself on the New York stage. Um, the people back home would not have been pleased. She was supposed to use her gift um, for her faith. She wasn't supposed to bring that music, first of all, and kind of play it in a nightclub setting. She certainly wasn't supposed to bring it to a place like the Cotton Club, which was a segregated, um, a segregated club, so it was white patrons almost exclusively. Um, she wasn't supposed to set herself up for ridicule as a so-called holy roller, so black Pentecostals um, were sometimes seen as kind of um, backwards, um, or mocked for their religious beliefs. So there were all kinds of taboos mm-hmm. and all kinds of um, fearlessness that she had as well, I think. And then what she, what she, you know, to kind of add to that, unlike a lot of artists that we know who cross over that line, who go from Aretha Franklin, who go from kind of performing in a church context or or developing their musical chops in that context and then making a switch over into secular music, Rosetta Tharpe always tried to to straddle that line. Mm -hmm. Um, She always tried to have a foot in both worlds. She didn't want to choose a world, and I think that kind of earned her... (laughs) That was another reason. If she had just left, um, maybe Mm -hmm. it would have been easier for people to say goodbye to her and kind of ignore her, but she always maintained that foot.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, Nina had that that same kind of... uh, straddling and and, and having to, to, to balance two worlds her her mother uh, the minister uh, would ha- never have approved of her singing in bars and clubs mm-hmm. and uh, so that's one of the reasons that she changed her name uh, because she was trying when she was first playing piano in a bar in Atlantic City she didn't want her mother to know about it so she 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 hid behind the name Nina Simone um, and also, she had wanted to be a classical pianist and really felt that she was betraying her art mm-hmm. and artistry by uh, singing, or by singing and, and playing non-classical music. Mm-hmm. And throughout her life, she, she always clung to the, the idea that she was going to be the first black classical pianist mm-hmm. uh, and uh, was disappointed in that didn't happen for her even though she had such a, a glorious Wonderful career, career. Yeah. yeah
2: so we have these these women who were remarkable artists for their moment and have left such an important legacy but the story of the history of women in music is not a, always a pretty story right i mean the rock is not alone in not having a large representation of women inducted you know if we look at music polls music writers that that keeps happening so could you guys reflect on that a little bit what is that in the music business um, maybe historically that's been especially challenging for women and and noelle maybe how how have you seen it as a musician growing up
5: um it's interesting because you know i've had i've had several conversations about my experience in coming up in music i mean i grew up in a world of hip-hop and R&B, and a lot of those areas were really male-dominated and from the artistry standpoint, you know, we did have Queen Latifah and we had J.J. Fad and all of these people that came up when I was coming up and like learning about hip-hop, but when I started to kind of pursue i guess like more of a songwriting career because i was it wasn't necessarily something i wanted to do i didn't want to be the performer on stage i wasn't trying to chase the dream of being you know a singer but i wanted to help other individuals kind of craft their career in the creative space which was writing for me i'd always written down every single lyric to every single song i sang every single record that i'd ever heard t- down to the science of the way that the singer you know had had done it and you know, when I became more involved in the hip hop realm, I started realizing hey, there's not that many women that are doing this world, and, and, and why is that? Um, but with that came a lot of male support mm-hmm. that I had received. I didn't have the experiences of dealing with being treated differently because of my gender. I was never sexually harassed. I've never had to deal with that story. Um, however, um, it doesn't mean that I wasn't aware of things that were going on, because when I saw it, I spoke up about it, and I would check someone on, the way, on their behavior, and I would say, that's not cool, don't treat her that way, because if your mom saw this, she would slap the crap out of you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I you know, was able to kind of do that, um, and then also with, with growing, I always had these incredible women that were behind me. My very first attorney, up and even till now, mm-hmm. they've all been women. They own their own firms, they were doing their own thing. My publicists were women. You know, uh, uh, the woman that I uh, interned with at Atlantic Records when I was in college, she was the head of publicity at Atlantic Records. So I saw all of these different figures of women that were crushing it. Mm-hmm. Did I know their backstory? Did I know what they had to go through to get there? I did not. I got to see them lifting up people like myself and putting more women in these positions. Mm -hmm. So that encouraged me to be that type of individual. When I saw a woman that had incredible talent that wasn't quite getting there because she wasn't connected, I tried my best to connect her with the people that I knew that I knew could help her and I felt that that was really important. So when we're having the discussion about Me Too, we have this movement, and it's the awareness that made it really important. Now, how are we going to make these areas of the industry that were never quite attractive for females in the beginning because it was a male-dominated thing, become popular for young girls that want to maybe do that? And to be shown that you can have success as a woman in this industry, regardless of how, how much we fought prior to them getting there. Mm-hmm. How are we going to show them the beauty of being that head of the VP, of being that you know director in that film? Show them the beautiful side of it and know that there are people that supported you in getting there, and now you have the, the chance to do that. How mm-hmm. are we going to move the movement forward with making them aware of their... Abilities to enter into a world that they wouldn't have entered into maybe 10 years ago. Tech industry, you know, uh, from the music standpoint, production. The LD, my monitor engineer, her name is Whitney <laughs> Hoplin, and she's incredible. And she, I, I swear, and it's not to be like, you know, the bouting off of the mail or whatever, she's better than any male that I've ever worked with on ears, on in ears and that's a really hard thing to do because those things change every single night. It doesn't matter how good of a singer you are and how used to you, you are that technical thing. I can't even explain it. Mm. And she's so good, you know, at what she does. So, you know, I want to promote her, you know, like if she finds if she has to go on tour with Beyonce, I'd be sad if she left me, <laughs> but she can go and do that because now she's this woman that is the monitor engineer for Beyonce and she can talk about you know, not only just working with me, but working with this woman who is the powerhouse <laughs> of my generation, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, pushing, pushing things forward and helping people, I think this is where the Me Too movement is really going to have its impact. And, you know, and, and making sure that the stories that were the horror stories become the success stories right. and become these things that you're no longer ashamed of it is just a part of your history and it made you who you are but it's not who you are today mm-hmm. that's that's what I yeah. would like to come out of you know yeah. the music industry you know the standpoint because there are women like me that didn't experience that. We saw the yeah. positives. So how are we going to take those positives and make them, you know, for future generations?
2: And part of that, Gail, too, is the work that you do in terms of bringing yeah. a story. I mean, when your book came out, not a lot of people knew Sister Rosetta's story.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. and
3: I wanted to just to add to that. It's that's that's true. That the um, I'm thinking about Rosetta's R- Rosetta Tharp's position in this context. You know, growing up in a Pentecostal church, there was a certain way that she had a lot of women had a lot of agency and a lot of power within that church. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain way that they didn't. And certainly in terms of kind of what was expected of women, in terms of modesty and in terms of marriage, those were restrictions. Um, Her first marriage was an unhappy marriage. Um, So was her second marriage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about the third. It was an unhappy marriage. And according to some people I spoke to, her husband may or may not have um, tried to lift a hand to her. So for her, going into you know the kind of professional world of music making would have been both a kind of way of economically uplifting herself mm-hmm. and of earning a kind of independence and also being able to carve out a kind of life for herself as a black woman that was not available to her as the wife of a minister. Some of this is speculation because you know we can't I can't talk to her um, and say that, but I would say that for her moving into that context allowed her to pursue an unconventional life as as a woman. Um, And this is something that I think affects women in music, in my experience, talking to women, especially of that generation. So she traveled on the road, sometimes by herself or sometimes with a female um, artist, that Marie Knight, who she sang with. She bought her own tour bus, partly as a way of negotiating segregation in the South. But you have to also imagine, partly as a way of ensuring her safety
1: Mm -hmm. as a woman
3: she never had children and it's unclear whether she wanted children whether she tried to have children so I don't we don't know the answer to that but it's true that so many women talk about she certainly sacrificed traditional domesticity Mm -hmm. if that was of interest to her it's not clear that it was but if it was of interest she couldn't have a conventional life or a conventional marriage because of her art and pursuing her art and pursuing audiences so I think those have always been you know, choices, and it was a choice that Nina Simone made as well um, in terms of, and her conflicted role as a mother. I mean, how could she be a mother and also pursue this career? Um, So I think that there's a way that women have earned a kind of freedom from Mm. restraints, and it includes a kind of sexual freedom. Mm -hmm. Rosetta Tharp was bisexual, I think, because of the unconventional life that she lived. She also could pursue relationships. She would not have been able to pursue that kind of sexual exploration had she been a wife at home. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was a way that it gave, I think the way that going into the music world gave them, gave her at least, a kind of freedom, even as it came with its own set of dangers yes. and challenges. Yes,
4: that's
3: right. Yeah. Um, there's a story about uh, Ruth Brown,
4: one, mm-hmm. one of our inductees, who had uh, an incredible career. Uh, and uh, the, her record label was called The House That Ruth Built, because of the, mm-hmm. the number of hits that she had in the 50s. Um, she had a, a small child and uh, she came home off the road and her child didn't recognize her and screamed and ran away because didn't know who this, this strange lady was. Mm-hmm. And Ruth had, she, she made a decision that she, she had to stop touring because she wanted to be with her child. and you know that 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 in a, a you yeah. know a nutshell is yeah. is kind of the the story of of the the choices that that women and any professional woman has to make uh... between domesticity and and professional life and um... Nina had a kind of a, a, a similar uh... situation with her daughter she she had one daughter lisa and um... She, she spent much of the time after Lisa was already an adult uh, just berating herself for not having spent as much time mm-hmm. with her as she would have liked to.
2: That's it. We would be here all afternoon if we started to speculate on the motivations of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voters, <laughs> um, but both Nina Simone and Sister Rosetta Tharp have been eligible to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since mm-hmm. the first year of induction. Any thoughts on why, in the culture, more broadly, maybe there there, there perhaps is an interest in these two women right now, m- musically, culturally, historically?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Nina Simone is having a moment, and there's a way that hip-hop has kept Nina Simone um, you know, yes. present for younger generations, because her work is sampled, so a lot of the students that I teach know about Nina Simone. If they don't already know about her, they know about her because of Kanye West or they know about her through other musicians. So I think she's experiencing a revival. Um, I think with Rosetta Tharp, um, you know, rock and roll as a as a phrase was a phrase used to um, attract young white audiences to our rhythm and blues music, to black music. It was a way of kind of making it appealing to young white people. It then also became appealing to young black people, but um, but so when the when the word rock and roll starts to begin to be used in the 1950s, that's the meaning that it has. By the time Rosetta Tharp's career is kind of toward its very end by 1970, people, people no longer associate rock and roll with those black innovators of whatever you want to call it, rhythm and blues or soul or blues or jazz that becomes rock and roll um, so that I think there was a way that, both on account of race and gender, Rosetta Tharpe's story could just be forgotten. And this Mm. is not because the some of the even the white male musicians who emulated her and respected and loved her didn't talk about her. Um, So it's not necessarily attributable to like individual you know the neglect of individual musicians. It's really about the stories that we tell culturally about who embodies rock, and especially with the um, the rock god. So, one of the things, if you see the image of Rosetta, if you go to the YouTube, not now, but later, <laughs> if you go to the YouTube, you see your notion of what a rock god is totally upended. Mm. First of all, the woman who's playing the guitar like that is middle aged. Um, she's dressed respectably. So, it's not rock associated with kind of teen rebellion um, or with dressing down. She's dressed nicely. Um, And it's a black woman. So she embodies all of a a different way of thinking about rock and roll, which I think challenges this narrative. And so Mm. I think it's very much because of that cultural narrative. And I've been trying to figure out, like, where does that come from? I mean, it comes from so many places. But it happens, and it's so powerful.
4: And Nina Simone was saying Black Lives Matter
3: (laughs) decades ago.
4: And, you know, at this moment, it's uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing to to go back and and read the things that she said see her concerts see her performances and how strongly proudly Mm. black she was Mm -hmm. and uh... interested in uh... making sure that everyone that there was a a level playing field and that uh... she got the kind of respect that she was due certainly Mm -hmm. and uh... The 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 larger society felt that maybe uh, oh you know she's not a, a, a skinny light skinned uh, person who uh, can play Las Vegas. Um, that, uh, one one of the really interesting comments that I, I got from uh, a biography of her was uh, a critic who said, "Well, you know, with her looks." Uh, she's got to know that people haven't come to see her. They've come to hear her, mm-hmm. which just like set my hair on it mm-hmm. <laughs> on end. Um, mm-hmm. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman, but you know, standard uh, societal norms of beauty mm-hmm. uh, was, was not what she was about. You know, and, and the idea that you know she had very dark skin, that she had a broad nose, um, that she she didn't look like the classical white standard of beauty, yeah. um, was was a, a, a very important important distinction. And now I think, you know, we we understand that there's all different kinds of beauty, and um, she's certainly. Certainly, one of them.
3: Can I add to that? One of the one of my favorite um, Nina Simone stories has to do with um, her. uh, Oh no, I just blanked out on what my favorite Nina Simone story was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was just thinking about her um, playing. uh, Her being very. Punk rock in a way. She was a performer Ooh. who demanded a certain yeah. kind of respect Attention. on stage. Yep. Yeah, well, and so you, there is this footage training. of her yeah. that's amazing. And right, it came out. Rosetta Tharpe was not like that because she came mm-hmm. out of a context where you were supposed to bring the audience in and win them over. Yeah, um, right. Nina Simone was like, "You don't want me? I won't do anything for you that's <laughs> until right. you obey." So the footage <laughs> that you see where she's out there, there's some footage on YouTube now where she's out there to perform, and she just stares down. This is an audience in Europe, and she stares oh. them down. Yeah, for like they're, they're a minute. Yeah, and yeah, and it's like very much you know, the, uh, that prerogative <laughs> to say, you will respect <laughs> me, you yeah. will respect my art, you will listen to me, that she kind of embodied that.
5: That's bold. Yeah, <laughs> you know? um, and to you know, add to both of the stories, when you're asking about maybe why now, it's timing timing is everything yeah. you know we're in a period of time right now where people are protesting for equality protesting for things that weren't talked about because they didn't feel they could be talked about many years ago yeah. um and now it's it's being put into the forefront so we have these two women that defied mm-hmm. i'm going to say they defied gravity <laughs> in their world you know and they are becoming these pivotal you know women in the Me Too, and what the Me Too story, you know, is, and these women that are fighting and for something and defying gravity in this way, and and telling a different. Telling a different story, you know, um, all of the stuff that's going on with gun control, Black Lives Matter, and uh, the justice system our political. You know, standing throughout the world, what's happening throughout the world. These are all coming to head now, yeah. and it's it's going to you know change the face of everything, especially in the creative world. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, I think it's just a different time. Um, I remember reading uh, uh, something in a book by a gentleman by the name of Charles Dun, I may pronounce his last name wrong, hue He has a book called, um, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking out on it. Anyway, he's, he, and within the book, he's talking about the timing of the civil rights movement and the things that really drove it to become a national uh, uh, fight, a national protest. It wasn't just because Rosa Park got on the bus. It was because Rosa Park was backed up by people in, in, I think, the governor's office or something. She had a different support system that other people that had done the same thing before her didn't quite have. So for them, it was a regional kind of fight versus something that changed the scope of, oh, now it's on the news, and now California's seeing what's going on in the South, and Mm -hmm. you know with the bombing of the church, and these children being murdered, and all of these things, it changed the you know, it changed the scope of the publicity that was, you know, being seen throughout the world and throughout this country. You know, so when you're talking about now, all of these rappers talking about Nina Simone now. Most Def was the first person that I heard talking about her back in like 2000 or whenever his first record came out. I had no idea who any of those black rock musicians were until I heard it in his rap song. You know what I mean? Because I grew up listening to Rush and listening to like Pink Floyd and Metallica, and none of them looked like me. Right. But this was rock music, you know, for for that period. So until I heard him say that, I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna go dig in." Oh, whoa! <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That like changed the whole yeah. the, the the focus, you know. So I think now we're in a different time where everything's being put in front of you, and you have to deal with it. You know, we have to deal with the fact that we have all these incredible women in music that have been on the list for a long time, and now y'all gotta start looking at them, right. you know, and, and, and defying gravity for the music industry, because I can really only talk about that <laughs> right now And the rest of the world, obviously, yes. but yes, yes.
0: Um, I don't want to stop. Any of this, I know, we are going, now we're going to include the audience. So today, right in the middle of Rock Hall Induction Week, we are really enjoying a forum with influential women in the music industry about their work, the Me Too movement, the history of rock and roll, and the power of the female voice to affect lasting change. Our panelists include musical artist Noelle Skaggs, who's the co-lead singer of Fits in the Tantrums, among other projects, Meredith Rutledge-Borger, assistant curator at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. and Dr. Gail Wald, Professor of English at Columbian College of Arts and Science at the George Washington University, and also author of Shout, Sister Shout. Our moderator is NPR Music Senior Director, Dr. Lauren Anke. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our webcast. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are Youth Forum Council Chair Tiola Orsanya, and Content Coordinator Bliss Davis. May we have our first question, please? You- <laughs>
1: Don't be shy, people. There we go.
5: There we go. <laughs> Hi. Um, so, how do you think um, having a movement like the Me Too movement would have affected the careers of the two women you've been talking about in the panel way back mm. then? Mm. That's a great question. That's a good, you know. <laughs> um, uh, she, she that is a really hard isn't. question. Um
4: I think Nina she, was the Me Too movement yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, like, like, of, of her era. Because yeah. she, she, she called it. She she yeah, she was completely outspoken about mm-hmm. any kind of injustice that she encountered or um mm-hmm. I think she she really she was such a, a a trailblazer in that way in that she would not she wasn't having it you know if it, if if there was something that was that would that was an injustice that w- not only affected her but any anyone in in her community she was she was very outspoken about it and um... it's i don't know if it's just an accident of 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 time, you know, she, her, her being before her time, uh, that uh, the kinds of, of changes that are that we're seeing now um, didn't didn't happen for her at that time. Um, but I don't know. What, what do you think about Rosetta? One
3: of the people I interviewed for uh, the book was one of Rosetta Tharp's close friends. They called each other sisters. And um, she also had been in an unhappy marriage and raised in, in, in the Kojic, in the Pentecostal church. And I think for those women, and they're coming from a particular context, um, they didn't have a way of talking about being unhappy in their marriages um, mm. and, and wanting to kind of create diff- solutions to that for themselves. And that ha- had multiple reasons. But I think had there been a way for them um, to get out of marriages where they felt that men were disrespecting them or even being abusive. They didn't have those avenues. They had to do something radical, but that was at the, the cost of maybe severing their ties to a community that had nurtured them. Mm-hmm. So they had this impossible choice to make. Do I, do I remain within this community that's everything to me, or do I kind of create a path? So I think that the more thinking about like kind of, I think Me Too might have provided a way of thinking intersectionally about mm-hmm. how to, you know, what are the paths that can be created so that women can stay within those faith communities if they choose. Um, so it's a that's a much bigger question and speculation. But when I did talk to Roxy Moore about this, she talked about crying with Rosetta Tharp
5: and thinking about, you know, they had been bad girls in the eyes of their community. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they have it on that. I mean, you know, I can only speak from maybe trying to think as an artist in that yeah. in that period of time that you know was dealing with those di- different social, you know, fibers back then, yeah. you know, being a African American woman, you know, trying to grow into the music industry in a world that was Basically all racist, you know, like it was a very it, you know, the black community is what you had your church is what you had That's what you grew up with your family is what you had. We didn't have mental health You know <laughs> going to a therapist meant you were crazy, mm-hmm. you know, so um, There were no Avenues to go if you were bipolar which I am you know and taking medication for it and doing all of these things So there's you know, it's 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 really hard to say back in those days whether or not Me Too would have really done anything yeah. because we were fighting for voting rights as African Americans too. And then, you know, so there were so many different avenues and so many different, you know, battles that had to be fought and won to get us to where we are now.
0: We have a Twitter question.
5: Could you talk about the vast change we've seen from Rosetta Tharp seemingly choosing career over family and Cardi B recently <laughs> saying in an interview about her pregnancy that she wasn't giving up her career but getting both.
3: Yeah, I mean, Madonna sang about that, right? And I'm keeping yeah. my baby. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I just, just in response to the question, which is a really good question, I don't, I don't want to say that Rosetta Tharp chose a career over something else I think she might have made a choice because that's the that's the path that she was meant to yeah. be on and that in some sense it wasn't a choice <laughs> in that sense it was kind of her <laughs> destiny to go ahead and pursue that mm-hmm. um, but I do think it, I mean it's really interesting to see how young women in the music industry and I have noticed the, some of the buzz about Cardi B know how to negotiate that because and the thing with Nina Simone worrying about her child I mean that's um, that's both about like conventions, but it's partly about like the, the ways that male musicians maybe or maybe not have worried about whether they've been with their yes. child and the ways mm-hmm. that for better or for worse women take that on as right. a responsibility. Mm-hmm. So um, thinking about, and the women I know who have who are musicians who have kids talk about how hard it is and often they have to have a partner who's like willing to watch the kid backstage when they're touring and that's hard to find that partner who yeah. has that life, <laughs> A, who has that life who can travel with you. Sometimes they're also musicians, but who's willing to maybe subordinate his or her sometimes career for your own. So um, I, I, I'm rooting for Cardi B. Yeah. I want to see mm-hmm. her do cool it. Girl. I want to see her be, you know, and, and right, I, I think the idea that, you know, you can have it all, I, I, I feel critical of that. No, you never, no, no one no ever, has, ever it has, has it all. <laughs> that doesn't exist. But I'm rooting for Cardi B to carve out a way of being a mother and be this like kind of figure in the public eye at the same time. I want to see that. Yes.
5: Yeah.
0: Next. <laughs> uh, okay. I always have questions. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the music industry, the popular music industry, is um, largely the business plan. Has been for a long time, sort of misogyny, the sexualization of women, you know, all of that. Um, we haven't touched on that. It's felt like it's sort of in the room, but not explicitly touched on. And I wonder if you all could just discuss that a little bit, please.
2: Well, it sure has, right? I mean, you know, the, the 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 marketing of misogyny, the marketing of the rock god, um, the 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 stories of the mistreatment of of women become kind of fun tales, Led Zeppelin most famously, right? Um, So I would think that women performers are sort of negotiating kind of around that, but also potentially participating in it. Um, But I think a lot of the music historically contributes to that oppression and as a fan, I know I would often feel like that, right? Like I would love music and then suddenly I'd hear the lyrics in a particular way as a teenager and go like, ooh,
5: yeah, you know, and yeah.
2: and what am I gonna do with this now, right? Yeah. Did yeah. you guys have that?
5: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I remember, um, you know, listening to N.W.A. and mm. all of the, you know, kind of West Coast. And I keep going back to hip hop because it is such. A foundation for me as an artist, you know, it was such an influence on me as I was, you know, growing into my teenhood and and figuring out that if I was a diva or if I was something else, you know, like just trying <laughs> to like figure it out. But you know, just listening to that music back when I was a kid, and then listening to it again when I started hitting like 25, you know, like 25, 28. I'm 38 now. I couldn't listen to all the curse words. I couldn't listen to, you know, the things being said about women in the songs. I couldn't listen to Little Kim, who I mm. loved when I was, you know, her first record came out. I could couldn't listen to any of it. Because for me, it kind of diminished me as a human being. You know, it wasn't even necessarily about being a woman at that point. It was me as a human being. Like, Would I want somebody saying that to me in the street? Would I want somebody creating a song like that about me if they thought it was a love song? No, I don't want to... That's not the kind of love song I want (laughs) written about me. It's fun to dance to or, you know, whatever it is. But I think, you know, we as human beings have had this unconscious, you know conversation that has been going on you know for a lifetime that's going to take a really long time to break out of. It's the yeah. way that we see each other as human beings. Black, white, Latino, Asian, all of these things, these, these unspoken conversations that are happening in pictures, you know it's all this unconscious like symbolism of, you know, black women being like always strong and always being independent. And you know, uh, um, mothers by themselves, and that has been a big part of our community. But it's also been those conversations. No, I didn't grow up that way. My parents got divorced when I was six, and my mother got married again when I was eleven. And I've always had a male, you know, female dynamic in the household. But it didn't change the fact that you know that divorce affected me like it affects any other you know child that went through the watching a full family into one person you know for however many years it took her to meet my father you know we we all go through these life things we all deal with emotional traumas in the same way you know um we all have a story to tell but i think what's happening is one story is being told and being seen as better than the other and once we get out of that habit and we start breaking, like just because you're a man and you're really good at the tech doesn't mean I can't kick your a, 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 you know what I mean, in doing the same job as a woman. It's about my knowledge, it's about my education, and once it becomes more about what you know and your walk of life and your story, and less about what you look like and what you carry in your gender, I think we're going to be a better society. You know.
3: Um, the pioneering female. Rock critic Ellen Willis, mm-hmm. who doesn't get enough shout-outs. shoutouts, mm-hmm. um, she wrote about this because she loved, you know, the Rolling Stones. This is going back to the '70s. She wrote about this problem of like, kind of loving the Rolling Stones, <laughs> but also feeling like, what, you know, I, I and, and genuinely saying, I love this. This this makes me feel free. This makes me feel good. But at the same time, I want to kind of think about this, and I always feel on the knife's edge about that. And especially generationally, as I'm in my '50s and I teach 19-year-olds. I don't want to judge. I feel very cautious about judging because I feel like the ways that we get pleasure from things that are outrageous, that defy boundaries, you know, that cross um, that cross lines that we're not supposed to cross. That there is a pleasure and excitement yeah. mm-hmm. in being able to do that, and that that can feel freeing, even for a young woman. Yeah. You yeah, know, definitely. I remember like thinking you know, now in retrospect, I think, how did I listen to Pink Floyd? It seems so misogynistic, you know, but I certainly was on the Pink Floyd yeah, bandwagon yeah. <laughs> as well. So that's to say that it it's gave, true. it did something for me as a young woman, and I don't want to deny that to people. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we have to be careful in kind of, especially as we get older and saying, that music, you know, mm-hmm. they're saying things that in my generation we didn't say. We had our own versions of that, but mm-hmm. I feel like we just have to also kind of create spaces for young women to talk about what they, what yeah. they get from that. What mm-hmm. it does do for them, and whether the That's pleasures, and yeah. even give them tools to say, this is a source of pleasure for me, but I also have a critique. Yes. At right. the same time, so I don't want to say to them, I, I think that telling people what you like is you're not supposed to like it. That is not mm-hmm. right. a way of either winning people to your side <laughs> yeah. or making friends. Right. Yeah. So I think we have to find a way of doing that. I think empowering young women to think complexly about yeah. the worlds they inhabit. So like. You know, Understanding what, the language that you're taking in, right. calling underst- each other yes. my, my bee, yeah. which yeah. feels like Ugh, to me, but I don't but, want to deny people the pleasure of that.
4: Yeah,
5: exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it, just
4: giving giving people tools to analyze it, yeah. Yeah. you know, and not not just say, oh, that's all right. the you know that's wrong, that's that's yeah. that's that's bad for You have to yeah put it out there and have give give give, give people tools to question it. Yeah, yeah. you know why why. Why does that video have, you know, 14? <laughs> scantily clad women, you know, <laughs> gyrating and twerking, yeah. you know, and does that really help to sell the record? Uh, is it gonna, would it be less pop? Yes. When
5: you're looking at the money, yes. Yep. Yeah. A thousand percent. And that's the question we well, have so to ask why? ourselves. Why yeah. is that? Maybe it's because of that freedom. Maybe it's because of this, oh, this thing that I would never see at home becoming, oh, this thing that I see on television. You know, I think it. it becomes like supporting not just those, you know, commercial artists where they're pumping just, just pumping that same view, mm-hmm. you know, at us every single day, but also supporting those videos that don't have that. Right. You know what I mean? And 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 balancing out the scales and what you buy and all of these things, because at the end of the day, these businesses are looking at the money that they're making and they're looking at the popularity of a particular artist over the other and how much they're going to support them. So. If you wanna have the balance, we gotta start, you know, yeah. balancing out the scales and what we're seeing in in front of us that becomes popular.
3: And someone like Cardi B is a great example, you yeah. know, in her like her breakout song, she talks about I'm not dancing for money anymore, I make money move. You know, yeah. I yeah. I and so mm-hmm. I you know, think about like her persona and the way that she combines a kind of sexuality that yeah. she displays, but also tries to like claim a certain power with that. Yeah. And that's a you know that's you know that is clearly appealing yeah. it's certainly part of you know her presentation it's part of the whole thing that makes her cardi b that makes mm-hmm. people love her and yes. she controls the yes. money yes she controls money
5: and her image and, and her image yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yep
1: Hi. Thank you all so much for being here and lending your expertise and your voices to this conversation. Meredith, I'd like to direct my question towards you. If you, in your role um, with the Rock Hall, if you could speak to challenges that you've faced Mm -hmm. in bringing more women's experiences Mm -hmm. and voices um, to what we, the the public, can experience there.
4: Yeah. Um, Well... Oh. (laughs) <laughs> when when we were working on putting our Women Who Rock exhibit together in 2011, this is something that we had wanted to do for years, and it was a challenge because there was always there was always something that uh, would was seen as more appealing, uh, something that uh, was going to uh, serve the community better, uh, and. It took it took a long time, and a, a lot of a lot of pushing, and uh, we were so delighted to be able to do it in in 2011 and have that exhibit travel around around the country. Um, and in the wake of that, Lauren and I were talking about about this bef- before we started. Um, Lauren was wondering if. Uh, making sure that women were represented in our exhibits has changed since we did that exhibit. Mm-hmm. And what it has done, it's made it made inclusion more top of mind. Mm-hmm. Whenever we're putting together an exhibit, we always have to be very concerned about who's being represented and how. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a challenge. You know, I mean, this is a, a the, the music industry is a microcosm of the world, yeah. which is male dominated and has been, and um, we are, are working to, to get, get some parity and some equity.
0: Today at the City Club, we've been speaking with Meredith Rutledge Borger, assistant curator at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Noel Skaggs of Fits in the Tantrums, and Gail Wald, professor of English at Columbian College of Arts and Sciences at George Washington University, also author of Shout Sister Shout, All Influential Women in the Music Industry, our moderator was Lauren Anke of NPR Music. Our forum today is sponsored by PNC Bank and presented in partnership with Laurel Live and the Elevation Group. Our community partners are the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, the Floristone Mather Center for Women, and Sixth City Sounds. Hotel and accommodations are provided by the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate all of you for your great support of City Club programming. This forum is also part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to many of you here for your support of City Club programming through that public grant. We welcome guests at tables hosted today by Medical Mutual and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Elevation Group. Additionally, we welcome students from Flow Homeschool Co-op, Laurel School, and St. Martin de Porres. Student participation in City Club forums is provided by many foundations, including the William M. Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today. The sale of Gail Wald's book, "Shout Sister Shout, is provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of today's forum. If anybody produces a Spotify playlist with every artist mentioned today, please let us know so we can publicize it. Thank you, Meredith Noel Gale and Dr. Anki. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, our forum is adjourned. Happy Rock Hall Induction Week. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.